Richard last week um, introduced us to a theme or a series of lessons that we intend to follow for the next couple Sundays, and that is uh, we titled Beginnings of a Church or Principles for a Church, um, might be kind of the working title of these, this series. And so last week we looked at some of the principles just for a church um, in Acts chapters 1 and 2. And we hit um, five or six principles just working through those two chapters. And really the point of the lessons uh, was not so much to look at the church, any specific church, not just the Jerusalem church or not just this church per se, but to look at what a church, according to Scripture, follows principally from Acts. Um, And so as we look at that collectively, as we see a collective group of people, a church, we also extrapolate what Christians do out of that. You know, a church is nothing more than a group of Christians who meet together. And so we see not only what a church does as a group, but we see what a church does as individuals. And so today we're going to continue in Acts, looking at principles that for a church. And today I plan to look at principles driven from Acts chapter 3 through Acts chapter 5. So we're going to hit three chapters this morning. So if you want to go ahead, um, Mike read for us in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. If you want to turn back to that passage, that is where we're going to begin this morning. And I have seven principles, so I don't plan to spend a whole lot of time in each one of these, but I want us to look within maybe the immediate context of what these verses say and the principle that I want to talk about. And we'll move on from there. So Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 16, as Mike had read, we see that right after where we left off in Acts chapter 2, after this this gospel sermon has been preached on the day of Pentecost to all of those who had gathered in Jerusalem. All of these hear this sermon. They see the works and the miracles that come with this sermon. And they asked a question at the end of the sermon. Well, what do we do with this information? You know, we believe it's true. How are we going to handle what's been given to us? And so Peter responds by saying what we uh, might often refer to in Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 39 through 41, where he says, you need to repent, you need to be baptized. And of course, we see there that those souls were added to a church. And I use that as in... They were saved people, and they were added to the universal church there. So in Acts chapter 3, we move on and we see Peter approaching this this guy who is not only paralyzed, he's lame in that sense. He has nothing for himself. He ends up having to beg, and he becomes known as a beggar, someone who makes a habit of asking people for charitable contribution, if you want to look at it that way. And so Peter encounters this guy. And so he sees him, and as they're going to the temple, he sees him. And so we look at what happens um, in verse 4 of chapter 3. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from it, them. And Peter goes on to say, I don't have money to give you. I'm going to give you something different than what you're expecting. And he heals him. Now we see that the result of this healing was not because Peter was such a great person, not because Peter was so strong, 
And it wasn't even so much only because of the faith that Peter had in Jesus Christ. We see, moving forward, that it is, in fact, the faith of this lame beggar that heals him. Look in, again, verse... Um, let's look at verses... Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate uh, of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So this man is healed, and he recognizes that this is the work of God. He doesn't recognize it as the work of Peter. He sees it as something that God has provided for him, maybe through Peter. And as we push on through the verses that Mike read for us, In fact, we see in verse 16 where exactly this man, this beggar's faith lay. And his name, by faith in his name, talking of this Christ, has made this man strong whom you see now. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So the principle I want us to see in this is a church as we extrapolate this and as we understand Peter being a member of a church, the church, is really a witness and a testimony to anyone in need. You know, Peter goes to the the temple on his way to worship God, to study with his brethren, as he might call them, the Jews in the synagogue. And he goes to this temple, maybe probably not expecting to bump into anyone on the way, but expecting his work to begin in the temple. But he realizes there's a guy along the way to where he expected to work, that needed some help. And so as he encounters this, this lame man, he not only sees that he has some physical needs, he realizes this man has deeper spiritual needs. And so it's really to this principle that each one of us are called, the church is called. Look in verses 14 and 15. As Peter speaks, as he presents this, as he goes into the temple with this lame man who has never before, as we understand, been able to enter the temple due to his disability, he is able to come in, and of course that draws the attention of the people around. And so they start to wonder and question what's going on. And in verse 14, we have some explanation of Peter. He says, Peter says in verse 14, But you, speaking to the crowds, denied the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see now. See and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all. Peter was willing to be a witness at any moment that it became an appropriate thing to do. Um, and I think that's a principle the church needs to understand. You know, each one of us as members of the church as Christians, and as we try to function here in Atlanta, in the city, we need to realize we need to be ready to be a witness and even to be a testimony to anybody who's in need. You know, sometimes that manifests itself as somebody who seems like they have a lot of physical needs. This guy's lame. He's begging on the way to the temple. And other times when we get to the temple, we realize even in spiritual places, there's, places who, there's people who have needs there as well. And Peter was willing to be a witness to both of these groups. As he witnessed and gave the testimony of Jesus, as that is always what we witness to, he gave this, this witness to not only this lame man, but the crowd. And look at what exactly it is he's witnessing to or attesting to. It says in verse 14, You denied the holy and righteous one. 
and asked for a murderer to be granted you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. You know, it really boils down to our testimony of who Jesus is and what he meant to us. Peter boils down his testimony to the fact that they had denied the one who was indeed holy, the one who was indeed righteous, the one who was the author or perfecter of life. They had denied that, and that was the message that needed to be brought to them. Whether it was the lame guy on the way to the temple, or it was the people in the temple, that was something that Peter was ready to be a witness for. And so we too as the church need to understand that we have to be ready to give that same witness to anyone we come in contact with who may have need of it. All right, so the second principle is actually in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And I struggled a little bit with how to phrase this principle. Me and Kirby talked a little bit about how to phrase this. And I ended up phrasing it, a church's glory is from Jesus. And what I want us to see in this is really in verse 13 of chapter 4. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. All right, so Peter and James specifically, uh, Peter and John, sorry, Peter and John specifically move forward from this incident with the lame beggar, so much so that people begin talking. And it gets the attention of some of the officials and those in power in the area. And they don't like the message that's being witnessed to. And so they bring Peter and John before them and try to intimidate them and discourage them from continuing to be witnesses to this message. Well, uh, Peter and John weren't people that you'd expect to be causing any kind of ruckus. They were lowly fishermen types. They were people who you were not expecting to be educated being able to debate and to reason and to really cause anyone of any understanding to question what they know. And so as Peter and John are doing this, saying something's going on here. And in verse 13, I think it's helpful for us to see that they saw this witness of Peter and John. They saw that and equated it to boldness. But they didn't give the glory or the, the, the ability of that boldness to Peter and John. And I think this is key for us to realize as a church is that they perceived they were uneducated and common men. There was no earthly <coughs> reason that this should have been happening. But the principle here is, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The, the principle here is that everything we do as we witness, as we are bold and speak to people and we have influence, People need to walk away knowing that we've spent time with Jesus. You know, there's really no earthly reason why we should not strike if somebody strikes us. There's really no earthly reason why I should tell you the truth if telling a lie is going to really gain me a job or gain me this other thing. Other than Jesus or God is telling me not to do that. And so obviously, unlike Peter and John, we didn't literally walk with Jesus. We didn't sleep in the same room as Jesus. We didn't eat with Jesus. But obviously, in ways, we do those things every day. And Jesus has left us his testimony and his word that we're to witness to. And as we do that, people are to say, you know what? I don't really understand what's going on here. Maybe he or she isn't supposed to be that way. All I can say is that they've been spending time with Jesus. And that is a principle that the church needs to be known for. 
All right, so as we move forward in Acts, Peter specifically just keeps getting in trouble. I mean, he just keeps going on and witnessing and being bold, and it keeps bringing about predicaments that he seems to find himself in. And at, in, this, in this same instance, in chapter 4, moving down to verse 19, Peter and John, in their answer, we see another principle. In their answer or in their defense of themselves or of the Lord, we see another principle that the church is to follow. Verse 19, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. All right. So, the other principle, or the next principle, the third one that I want us to look at, is a church can only but speak the truth. There's nothing else for the church to do. Um, and we look at Peter and John's example in this. Why do they even present this idea? Why do they even say we can only speak what God's given us to speak? Well, there's a couple things I think we see in this. Um... First of all, I think we see on an individual level, level, Christians are always to speak the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 says to put away lying, but to speak the truth to one another. So certainly this is a principle that Peter and John and all the apostles and disciples understand to be true. They continue to teach even in the letters. But it was fundamentally important for the church to be known for a place of truth. It wasn't a place of opinions. It wasn't a place of gossip. It was a place of the Lord's word. And I think another thing for us to get out of this, in speaking the truth, sometimes silence goes against truth. I think, I think we see that principle in these verses. Again, in verse 19, he says, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Well, what was the charge that they had uh, commended them or commended to them. In verse 18 it says, So they called them and charged them not to change the truth, but rather simply not to speak or to teach it all in the name of Jesus. You know, sometimes to distort or to change the truth is to not speak up when it needs to be spoken. Um, there's been a bunch of times in my life where I've thought, well, I should have said something, but I didn't but I let it be okay in my mind because, you know, maybe it wasn't my place to speak or maybe that wasn't the appropriate time. And those are things we need to consider, but I don't think we ever go wrong speaking in love the truth when it needs to be spoken. And I think that's the principle that any church needs to understand as they try to follow the Lord, is that truth should never be compromised, be it for falsehood or for silence. The fourth principle um, we see in Acts is also in chapter 4 at the very end, uh, in verses 23 through 31, as Peter and John are kind of released from this, I don't want to call it a trial, but kind of this intimidation of the authorities in power. They're released from this. Um, in fact, they were punished in verse, uh, or fi finding no way to punish them in verse 21. They, all the people praise God. And we move into this, verse 23, when they were released, 
they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, they placed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The fourth principle that I believe any church, any Christian has to follow is that we have to trust in the lordship of God. You know, sometimes there, uh, things happen and we don't really understand why and they seem intimidating, kind of like what happened to Peter and John. Uh, and we know, you know, if you imagine you're Peter and John, you're like, I know God wants me to take this message out there, but why is God throwing up all these hindrances to it? He asked me to bring it out. Why is he causing all these people to oppose it? And why does he not seem to be active? I mean, these are all potential questions we might have. <coughs> As things happen. Well, I think it's interesting that the Christians there, when the report comes to them, as Peter and John come to them and tell them what happened, their prayer begins by saying, Sovereign Lord. I think that's, I don't know what you might get out of this personally, but to me that says right off the bat, they're recognizing that God's in control. You know, there's some crazy stuff going on. We know you've said to bring the message out, even though people don't want it sometimes, but we know you're in control. They trust in God's lordship, that he really is the king over the earth. And they continue to pray just like they expect him to be in control of everything. Not so much, Lord, could you please control this? But Lord, we want to see you control it. As we move forward, they say, who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them? And then he references a passage that David had written in the Psalms. For truly in this city... They were gathered together, not against Paul, or not against Peter and John, but against Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Some could argue that what happened to Jesus was of the hands of the Romans or the hands of the Jews, but they remember that the Lord is king, that he is moving and he is acting, and these are the things of his will. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I put myself in their shoes uh, whenever I read this, and I think, what would my prayer have been? I think it might have been, make it easier. No, Lord, make it so much so that there isn't opposition to this anymore. Soften hearts, make this easy for me. But they say, no, just make us more bold. You know, keep us going at it. Uh, Not so much questioning the authority of the lordship of God, but requesting that we be made stronger and better to, to hold up in the times where it seemed hard. And so to me, that really speaks to a trust in God's ability to act and to be king over whatever's going on, including the things about me. 
And so we see that, and God obviously confirms this prayer. You know, we see the, the place that they're in kind of shakes, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think the Lord did that specifically to help them, but for us to see, He hears and listens to people who trust in His power. So that's something the church needs to follow, is understanding that the Lord is the King, and we have to trust in His Lordship. And when we see, when the church, when the collective trusts in God's power, I think Acts tells us we see his power. Um, we see the gospel prevail, and we see, literally, in Acts chapter 4, we see the place shake, and we see God's power in that way as well. All right, so the fifth principle is in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And I think this is an, an important principle, especially as uh, the brothers and sisters here in Atlanta continue to kind of grow with each other and get to know each other and learn and reach out uh, is that a church is to be united or unified in spirit and flesh. And I think this is important. Let's read these verses. Verse 32, chapter 4. Now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and, and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it on the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also call, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. God's church, or God's people, always imitate God. That's the definition of being somebody of God. A Christian is somebody who imitates God or Christ. And so in this way, as we see, we imitate God by being unified with our brethren and by being selfless to the utmost. Um, we might think of a passage like John uh, chapter 15, <coughs> verses 12, but really verse 14, John 15, 14, where Jesus says uh, to love your brother, the best thing you could do for him is to die for him, right? And I'm, obviously I'm paraphrasing there, but that's, that's the highest form of loving somebody is to die for a friend. Obviously, Jesus died for more than friends. He died for enemies as well. And I think that mentality is to prevail. If we're to be like Christ, and Christ obviously lived out John 15, 14, then we do the same thing, and it manifests itself, I believe, in the way that we see in Acts chapter 4. You know, as there were needs among brethren, they were supplied, whether it was spiritual or physical. Look in verse 32. Everyone is of one heart, one soul. In verse 33, the apostles with great power were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And what was on everybody? Great grace. I don't really know how to quantify grace, but it, apparently it's quantified on some level in this. It says there's great grace. I mean, it's just this abundance of grace on this group. And I think that tells us spiritually there's a unification among the people here. Obviously, the Lord has to be involved for there to be any unity and any bond in this. But the brethren are bonded with Jesus, which means they're bonded with each other. And... With that bond of spirit comes the bond of flesh. You see a brother that's been unified with you and Jesus, and then you take care of that brother. And we have great grace that can be given to us if we 
as a church, practice unity in spirit and in flesh. If we love each other like Jesus loved us. And, I mean, why would people even do this? I mean, it, obviously it boils down to a need to recognize Jesus as being a model. In uh, Ephesians 5, verses 23 and 29 through 30, if you flip over there, you read a passage that talks about a body. And it's a spiritual body. It's not one that you're going to see from day to day with your eyes or feel with your hands. But it's a picture that's painted for us. And it's no coincidence that God, or Jesus, is made the head of this body. You know, the head is the part that tells everything else what to do. The head is the one that does the thinking and the reasoning and the understanding, and the body just kind of acts all that out, right? Well, if the body is going to the head for responsibilities or for what to do next, then the body is going to be working unified or united with the other parts of the body. You know, my hand's not going to betray my other hand. My hand's not going to betray my eyes or my mouth. Hopefully my feet aren't going to take me somewhere. My hands don't, aren't ready to go. But only what the head is leading. And so in that way, I think the church here in Acts chapter 4, the Christians here, are unified because they all recognize they have the same head. And so that's a principle that the, we as a church here and as Christians need to understand. In Acts chapter 5, the sixth principle is verses 1 through 11. We're not going to read all of this, but this is the other end of the spectrum. This is the other end of what happens when maybe someone doesn't fully recognize the lordship or the headship of Jesus Christ. We have Ananias and Sapphira who decide that while they want to look the part, while they want to look unified, in fact, they're divided. And sometimes, to our eyes, people look unified or we are unified, but in, re in reality, the Lord is saying there's a division. There is uh, a splitting. You know, when, when I look at Acts 5, verses 1 through 11, I look at Ananias and Sapphira, they give up everything that they have, which is a big deal. That's a great step of faith. Their problem is, when everyone else is giving it to the church and supplying for the needs, they want to look like they're a part of that. And so they give, who knows, 80%, 90%, whatever percentage of what they sold to the church, but they claim that's all of it. Well, the surface problem is that they lie about it. I think that's an obvious thing. They're asked by the apostles, what have you given? And they've given it all, and they say, okay. And then the Lord says, why are you testing the Holy Spirit? Why are you testing the Spirit? And they each get struck down for that. But I think the root problem here is that they hadn't completely unified with God primarily and thus weren't ready to unify with the brethren 100%. Am I saying in this that our responsibility is always to sell our houses and our lands and all of our stuff? No. What I'm saying is we can't serve God and mammon. We can't be divided in that way. You know, that, that passage echoed in Matthew chapter 6, 24 was really the root problem to the surface problem of lying. Right? It was bad that they lied, but their problem was that they were still trying to serve themselves while looking like they were serving God. And when you're not really serving God, you're not going to serve your brethren the way that you need to. And so a principle for this church and every church should be be completely and whole, wholly 
united to service in the Lord so you can be united in service with your brethren. And that's something that the church has to do. And God really says in Acts chapter 5, verse 9, we'll read it here, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband and uh, are at the door, and they will carry you out. Sapphira had a chance to tell the truth, and she didn't, and so her end was that of her husband's. But look at what they say about how God sees this, this division. When you're serving two masters, when you're serving God and you're serving wealth or money or selfishness, it's really a testing of God's spirit. And I think that's an important thing for the church, for us to understand, is that that's on a test that God tolerates. He doesn't accept somebody claiming to be serving him wholly and be holding something back. And I think he shows that in how he handles Ananias and Sapphira. So the seventh and final principle as we look in Acts chapter 5 that I want us to look at this morning is and maybe the most practical for us as a new group, and we're trying to start this work here, the whole backbone of the group here is that we now can be an influence in the community that we're in. And I think Acts chapter 5 illustrates that this is something that is primary for the church. In Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42, the principle that I want us to see as a church is to take Jesus into the community. Let's read these verses, 41 and 42 of Acts chapter 5. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So again, we have our troublemakers uh, taken in front of a council, and they're presented with some options of how they can handle what the council has brought before them. So Peter is in front of this council, and he's been preaching and teaching Jesus. And they're, again, against him in this. Now, they end up letting him go after beating him. They let him go um, due to the advice of Gamaliel. He says, hey, if this thing's not for real, it'll fizzle out. Don't worry about it. Which, obviously, here we are talking about it today. But look, Peter suffers for Christ fairly immediately after uh, Acts begins. He's punished, and they're charged not to speak in the name of Jesus in verse 40. But in verse 41, they count it a privilege to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name. So that's one thing we have to understand. It's a privilege to even bear the name of Jesus and to bear the good news and to be a witness But that doesn't just stop. That motivates us to verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. If we're going to be a church of the Lord, we have to understand. If we're going to be Christians, we have to understand that the gospel doesn't just stay in the room that we're all gathered in. The gospel goes home with you and it goes into your workplace and it goes into the grocery store and it goes into your kid's daycare and it goes on the sidewalk when you're walking to the restaurant and it goes, the gospel goes into the community. You notice it didn't just go into the temple. 
right? I mean, it would be a service to teach the Jews. All right, let's go into the temple where people are here for religious things and tell them the truth. But it also went from house to house. It didn't just stay where maybe it might have been a little more comfortable. It went other places as well. And house to house seems to indicate that the community was hearing about this. And so if if in-town church, if we in Atlanta are going to be like the gospel and Acts tells us we need to be, we have to understand that this is an integral part of our function. That we're going to be in the community and that we're going to be going into the temples or we're going to be going into houses and bringing the gospel. Look in Ephesians chapter 5. I do want us to look at this chapter um, in this passage. Ephesians chapter 5. I know I've referenced several passages that I haven't really turned to, but I do want to look at this one. You know, you might ask the question, and not in the negative way, but you might ask the question as you think about it. You know, what, what is the church even about? Right? Why is there even a church? You know, I think Richard hit on this a little bit. You know, Jesus could have just come and saved people, and then, you know, the moment you're baptized, you go up to heaven. That could have been the plan. Obviously, it's not. What's the church around for? And I think it's the things we've been seeing consistently through Acts. There's a lot of principles, a lot of practicalities as far as functioning. But there's also witness, testimony, gospel, preaching, teaching. It's all about Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 12. I say chapter 5? I meant chapter 1. I'm sorry. I'm in chapter 1. I just said chapter (coughs) 5. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. And I'll begin in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That to me shows me, and there's a bunch of other times within the first two chapters of Ephesians that this phrase, to the praise of his glory, comes up. And in in several different ways, but saying generally the same thing. That anybody who's a follower of God, that is your goal. You know, it's not to, you know, worship the right way, though that's involved in being to the praise of his glory, but that's not the end goal. It's not to dress the right way. It's not to say the right things. It's not to have the right friends. While all those things feed into being to the praise of God's glory, the goal is giving God praise and glory. And we do that by listening to Him and how we worship. We do that by giving, as Richard said, waiting or giving place to God in our lives and how we do things. But that is the measurement for which we're to attain. Do we give God the glory and praise for who we are? Do we give him the glory and praise for how we do things? Why we do things? And we take Jesus into the community, I think this helps us understand what the church is all about. The church is all about giving praise and glory to God. I can't think of any other reason scripturally that the church exists other than to pronounce the goodness and the glories of the Lord. And that comes in different ways. It comes in preaching. It comes in teaching. It goes from house to house. It goes from temple to temple. It comes in these amazing testimonies and prayers. 
but it's all because God deserves glory and praise, and the church are the people who are bringing it to the world. And so in Acts chapter 5, this final principle, a church is to take Jesus into the community because a church praises God. Why do you take Jesus into the community? Well, the more people that know about Jesus, the more people there are to praise God. And that's really the bottom line. And so as we grow and we try to, de- to develop into what the Lord would want us to be here in Atlanta, the bottom line for us even existing is to bring praise and glory to God. And so that's my prayer for this group. I hope um, we can apply some of these principles in practical ways as we look through Acts and we continue to grow. Um, and that's, that's really all I had for this lesson. Your phone timed out, so I can't stop the recording. That's all I had for the, this.